In the following live recording, Claude King, Discipleship and Church Health Specialist with Lifeway Christian Resources, talks about the six disciplines for new and growing believers. In this session, you will become acquainted with a process and tools to develop balanced and healthy disciples who grow in their walk with Christ and carry His love and life to a lost and needy world. Let's join Claude now. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the um, opportunity we have to train this weekend. Um, Lord, we know that uh, when you placed us in the body of Christ, with Christ as our head, you also entrusted to the church uh, leaders, and uh, their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry of building up the body, and the whole body grows up into the full measure of Christ as every member does his work. Lord, um, most of the churches I know of have got a long way to go to look like that. But I, I want to pray, Lord, that you would teach us. Lord, every generation's got to learn how for our, our world, the members of our churches, how do we go about fulfilling your plan and your design for our churches so that we function as the body of Christ to represent you to the world around us. So I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, you know the needs in their churches. And uh, Lord, you know what you want to do through us as we uh, carry out your final command of making disciples. So I pray that you'll guide our time together and uh, guide my words. Lord, there are many things I could share. I pray that you'll direct me to share those things that would be most practical and helpful for the people that are here. I also pray that your Holy Spirit might say things that uh, you want to say to these that uh, may not be things I'll verbalize, but your Spirit will prompt them to understand or to know what you'd have them to do to obey you as we seek together to make disciples. So guide our time together, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A um, number of years ago, I, I came back to Lifeway, some of you may know, I, I began working at the Baptist Sunday School Board in 1985, and I worked with Avery Willis for uh, many of those years, um, developing the life learning system, and the experience of God was one of those things. Um, Master Life was the first course in that series. And then uh, I took a 12-year break and uh, quit my job to write Fresh Encounter with Henry Blackaby. And, and then uh, I've been back now since 2005. But uh, when I came back, um, my new manager, uh, Bruce Raley, uh, got us together and, and we started talking about, uh, he had been on a visit to uh, the Corvette plant in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And uh, it struck him at the fact that uh, you go into this plant and um, there's something unusual about this plant. The only thing that comes off of the assembly line at the end is a Corvette. You don't get Chevy trucks. You, you don't get a Camaro off of the end of the line. You don't get a, a, a Kia Sedona. You don't get any of those things. You only get a Corvette. But those people know how to make Corvettes and they know all of the ingredients, what it's going to look like, and they put it together. I was talking to a guy the other day, in just a matter of a, a day or two, they can put a car together, uh, the way they have things assembled. 
and you can each even go and order special order one and watch it being built. Um, but Bruce got to thinking about disciple making. Uh, we need to know what we want to come off of the end of the assembly line. And so we got together and started talking about how to maybe give a simple but practical definition for disciple making. And uh, here's what we came up with. Disciple making guides people to be transformed in Christ-likeness so they think and act like Christ. I'll repeat that, but disciple making guides people to be transformed in Christ-likeness so they think and act like Christ. Essentially, our job is to help people experience the transforming work that God has to do in them. Uh, remember in Romans, Paul said Romans 8.29, those God foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So God's predestined us to be transformed, to be like Jesus. And what he's wanting to do is um, change us so that we think and act like Jesus. And the good news is because he's placed his Holy Spirit in us, we don't have to just imitate him. We can let him live in us if we'll get out of his way. So um, disciple making, I'll repeat it one more time, guides people to be transformed in Christ-likeness so they think and act like Christ. I'm doing a conference tomorrow on disciple making and I actually put that in that handout so I apologize for not getting it in this one. But let me go back to uh, our founding document here in the scripture. Jesus was on the mount of uh, a mountain in Galilee when he gave his disciples this, I call it the final command. You would know this as the great commission but I found that I think too often we've heard Great Commission so much that it becomes jaded and people don't understand this is significant. This is really important. And Jesus, uh, after his resurrection, had 40 days to uh, give his last minute instructions to his disciples. And uh, though there were many things he shared with them, for instance, Luke's Gospel says that uh, beginning with the law and the prophets, he explained everything that the scriptures had to say about him. And I'm thinking, Luke, why did not you not give us that sermon? <laughs> Wouldn't you have liked to have read that sermon? He didn't give us that one. But every one of the gospel writers gives us an account of the final command. They're different words, said at different times, different locations, but what Jesus was trying to do is drill home this one final assignment I have for you, he's getting ready to entrust the entire future of his kingdom to these disciples. And uh, Matthew's gospel is perhaps the more familiar of the, the many. But Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Um, notice that the command here is make disciples. You've heard probably many sermons on this one. But uh, the command is make disciples. It might be better translated as you are going, as you're going about your daily life. 
wherever you are, in your neighborhood, in your home, in your workplace, make disciples. And uh, notice he didn't say make decisions. Uh, we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to be satisfied once somebody goes through the baptismal waters and we count them on our annual church profile. Uh, okay, they know where we are. They can come get it if they want it. Uh, let me ask you, how many of you that, how many of you have children? Many of us in the room. Uh, when did you start feeding that baby? Uh, right away. Uh, we, we don't wait, do we? <laughs> um, and we didn't say, well, when you, when you get to the place you can come get it yourself, help yourself. That baby can't grow without us taking care of it and getting it started. And so discipleship needs to begin immediately. And that's a part of the job of the church, to not just make decisions, but to make disciples. And so we want to help people begin in their walk with the Lord. And our ultimate goal is that they would look like Jesus that they would act like Him, talk like Him, uh, love people, and show compassion like Him, walk in humility, the characteristics of Christ's likeness. Notice He also said we're supposed to make disciples of all nations. Now we, we may get confused by the use of that term because we're thinking a map or a globe and the, the lines around these uh, different territories as a nation, but those are geopolitical nations but he's talking about people groups here, and that means every distinct people group. They may have a separate culture, a language, uh, histories and traditions. If you look just in the Native American population in North America, there are 365 sovereign nations within the United States. Each one is considered by the U.S. government a sovereign nation. They have their own governing bodies and their own laws and things, but um, we're to make disciples of all the people groups. And the nations are moving to us, especially Clarkston. Y'all got a bunch up there. Um, and we need to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe or obey how much? Everything, Everything I've commanded you. <clears throat> Well, when you stop and look at this final command, you realize that's really big. Why, making disciples. Uh, some of us, as we were getting started, acknowledge we, we've, we're not doing a very good job of that. We need to do a better job of that so that people uh, actually become genuine, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. But... Um, then when we think about the magnitude of all the nations and then teach them to obey, I won't ask you for a show of hands, but how many of you could say, well, you know, my church has done a good job and I'm obeying it all. Mm-hmm. And and that's the that's the goal, isn't it? But it's a, it's a challenge for us. So uh, one of the things I did uh, as I came back to Lifeway, uh, the, I was put on the discipleship team and one of the things we uh, wanted to do is develop some, um, uh, what I call a core curriculum. Um, if I were to go to the University of Georgia uh, or Georgia State or somewhere like that and I wanted to say get a degree in engineering, they would allow me to take some uh, elective classes. So I could take uh, bowling 
or I could take um, our depreciation or a lot of different kinds of things but I wouldn't graduate as with an engineering degree without becoming proficient at a core curriculum for engineering because uh, that, that school doesn't want to be responsible if your buildings start collapsing or bridges fall apart. So uh, I would say the same thing about our discipleship. We need to identify what are the core curriculum. These are some basic things and we need to help everybody be able to do these basic things in their walk with the Lord. And so one of the things we did, we took the Disciples' Cross uh, from Master Life. Have any of you studied Master Life? Okay, a number of you have. Uh, not to re uh, replace Master Life, but what we did is took the Disciples' Cross, which is a six-week study in Book 1 now in the revised materials, and um, Avery Willis introduces the, the disciplines in the Disciples' Cross. And what we've done is adapted this uh, Disciples' Cross. And uh, we're using it for what, I, uh, what we call the Growing Disciples Series. And I'll be introducing you to these uh, six disciplines. Let me just review them real quickly. Those in the center is Abide in Christ, Live in the Word, Pray in faith, fellowship with believers, witness to the world, minister to others. So um, what we've done is taken that um, disciples' cross, and they asked me if I would write the initial study. Uh, so it's called the Call to Follow Christ, and then there's a six-week study on each one of those disciplines. So it's basically a year, almost a year's worth of foundational discipleship resources for the church. So I want to introduce you to, um, to the Growing Disciples series, and if y'all don't mind, excuse me, I'm going to need some uh, help with water and throat lozenges along the way. I've got, uh, got diagnosed with bronchitis this week, and it's not over yet. Let me introduce you to, uh, this is the Call to Follow Christ, is the uh, first book in this series, and um, what I've done in the Call to Follow Christ is uh, done an overview of all six of the disciplines. And um, that way people can get the big picture. In a six-week study, they would get introduced to all six of these disciplines. Uh, when we first came out with this, uh, with this particular book, we released them over a period of a couple of years. But... Um, a number of churches realized, you know, we've dropped the ball on disciple making. And so they decided that what they would do is take their entire congregation through this study to try to get everybody on the same page. Um, I went to a church in uh, West Jackson, Baptist Church in Jackson, uh, Tennessee, and they took their entire congregation, began with uh, teenagers. They used it for their youth as well as their adults, through senior adults in order to get everybody on the same page because they realized we have we've not done a good job of making disciples and we've got catch-up work to do and and we've got lots of members in our church who've been members for a long time but they haven't matured in their walk with the Lord in some cases and so we want to help them with that I want to introduce you to these uh, disciplines but let me uh, let me begin with um, a passage about the call to follow Christ Luke uh, chapter 9, 
verse 23. Uh, then Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Um, Jesus said, if you want to be a follower, a disciple of mine, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Uh, those are three things that Avery Willis points out for the for a follower of Christ. We've got to deny ourselves, and essentially, we need to die to self so that Christ can live in us. We've got to make a choice. It's not my will that I need, it's His will. I need to know what He wants so that I can follow Him and do the things that please Him. Um, one of the things, and I don't think I'm gonna be sharing this in other sessions, but I uh, did a book a number of years ago called Consecrate the People. And in that message, I was studying the word consecrate it's a booklet, an eight-day devotional to help a church prepare for a solemn assembly. And um, as I studied the word consecrate in the scripture, in the Old Testament particularly, there are two terms for consecrate. One of those terms uh, means to sanctify, to set apart for God's purposes, to cleanse, to purify, to make holy, to put away the profane and the unholy. We see that used uh, in Exodus 19 where God says uh, he's getting ready to enter into a covenant with Israel and establish them as a nation, his chosen people. He's going to give them the law. And, uh, and in, that, um, in Exodus 19, God says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to come down on this mountain in three days, consecrate the people. Uh, it was important for Moses to get the people ready to meet with a holy God. We need to uh, be consecrated in that way. But then there's a second term for consecrate, and that term is um, uh, made up of two Hebrew words. <clears throat> One of those words means an open hand. It's not a closed hand, but an open hand, and the other word means to fill up. And so literally the word means to fill up the open hands. And I got to thinking, well, what's that got to do with consecration? Well, the imagery is this. A priest would stand beside the altar waiting for you to bring your offering or sacrifice to give it to God, to consecrate it to God. And he would stand there with open hands. And you'd select one that's without spot or blemish, knowing that's the only kind that would be acceptable to a holy God, and you bring it to the temple. As long as it's in your hands, it's yours. But when you fill up the open hands, it is consecrated to God, and it belongs to God. All of it belongs to God, and it becomes holy because God is holy. Well, um, when I got to thinking about that, as I read the the places where that passage, that particular word is used in the Old Testament, it, it got my attention that it wasn't animals, it wasn't grain offerings, it wasn't drink offerings, it was only used for people that were consecrated to God. So when God said, consecrate Aaron and his sons to me, that's the term that's used. When he said, consecrate the Levites for the work of the temple, that's the term that's used. Well, that got me to thinking about Romans 12.1, where Paul said, In light of all of God's mercies, I beg you to present your bodies as a living, living sacrifice. sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. 
And by the way, this is a reasonable expectation of your worship. Uh, later, Paul didn't use the word consecrate there, but the meaning is exactly the same. Present your body as an offering, as a sacrifice to the Lord, but a living one. You don't have to die. Uh, you, you die to self, but you, you become a living sacrifice. God works in and through you. Well, later Paul said, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and you are not your own? You've been bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Um, later he said uh, in 2 Corinthians, because he suffered and died for us, we're to no longer serve ourselves, but we're to serve the one who died for us. Well, when I got to thinking about all of those things, I was reminded of a book I'd read by Andrew Murray, where uh, Andrew Murray mentions a medieval ceremony that had to do with prayer. And I did some research on it. It was called an homage ceremony. Uh, began to ha occur about the 9th century AD, especially in Europe. Uh, the word homage comes from the Latin word for man. And what would happen is this. The king would sit on his throne and he would bring his vassals, his subjects, his serfs, his knights, and they would pledge their loyalty and obedience to their king in this homage ceremony. And what the king would do, he would sit on his throne and he'd hold out open hands like this. So you understand why I got to thinking about that ceremony. And the subject would come and get on both knees, put his palms together, place his hands inside the hands of his king, and he would say these words, I'm your man. The name of the ceremony comes from that. It was a simple pledge, but it meant a lot. It meant, I belong to you, whatever you ask me, I will obey. Uh, that pledge included, if I have to go to battle for you, I'll fight for you. It also included, if I have to die for you, call me, I'm your man. Well, Christians who had to participate in that homage ceremony got to thinking, wait a minute, we've got a king in heaven who deserves our loyalty and obedience far more than this earthly king. And so they developed a new posture for prayer. Do you recognize that? Getting on both knees, palms together, head bowed. That posture, I used to think that was a biblical posture because I've seen paintings of Jesus looks like that. But typically they prayed with hands lifted and eyes to heaven. We do read a uh, number of places, but Daniel, for instance, knelt three times a day to pray. More than likely, that was face on the ground, kneeling the way you see common all over the Middle Eastern world today. But this posture of getting on your knees, palms together, head bowed, began to appear in the 9th century. It began to show up in church practice in the 12th century AD. And what would happen is this, Christians would daily get on their knees to pray and realize I'm entering the very throne room of heaven where King Jesus is seated on the throne. And he's holding out nail-scarred hands to me saying, Claude, today I want your life, but not part of it, all of it. And they would pray, and I'm just guessing something like this, King Jesus, today I'm your man, I'm your woman. My time is yours, my career, my plans and ambitions are yours, my possessions, they all belong to you. I'm just a steward. Lord, my family belongs to you. My future, my, um, 
My health belongs to you. My reputation, my very life is yours. Command me. I'll obey you. Would that make a difference in your prayer life? What would happen if we as followers of Jesus heard his call to deny self? And, uh, and we took Paul seriously because of all he's done for us. We give ourselves to him in full surrender to be uh, living sacrifices that he can fill up and use at his pleasure to serve him and serve his kingdom. What would happen if we had a whole church full of people like that? There's no telling what the church could become with that kind of uh, effort. So. Uh, when Jesus calls us to be on mission with Him, it's a call to Himself. And uh, it's not a partial call, it's a complete call. He wants all of us, not part of us. We need to deny ourselves. We need to take up our cross daily. And uh, there are a number of ways people have described what it means to take up our cross. Um, it, part of that may be to die to ourself. Uh, cross is an instrument of crucifixion. Uh, some people have described the cross as the act of obedience that will be required of you, and that might be appropriate. Some people have, uh, I think, mistakenly uh, used that term if, if they have a, a burden or something that they have to live with. If you have a, uh, a disability, you may just say, that's a cross I have to bear. And, um, and yet, Probably that's not what Jesus had in mind for this particular passage. But uh, there's a passage in Romans chapter 6 that I think, to me, describes part of what we need to do daily with the cross. Romans 6 says, um, When we were buried with Christ in baptism, we died to sin. And you continue reading in Acts Romans 6, and you find that... Um, we're no longer slaves of sin. Uh, sin is no longer our master. We've been set free from sin. Uh, let me read verse 1 so I'll, and 2 so I can correct it. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Um, we were then raised to a new life. We have been baptized into His death and um, we need to understand that that's the reality of the cross for us. Uh, God has created a situation where when He saved us, He set us free from the guilt of our sin. But it's not just that we're forgiven. He set us free from the power and dominion of sin. And one of the things that concerns me in our day is that we have people who realize a Christian can sin, and, uh, and we've gotten to the place that we treat it so casually, oh, it's okay, you can sin and just tell him you're, you're sorry and he'll forgive you. He promised that he would. And we've got people that treat sin very casually, but the reality is, Christ wants us to live in the reality of Romans 6. You've died to sin. Sin's not your master. You're not a slave of sin. Truth is, you don't have to sin. 
So why don't you just live set free from sin? And uh, we need to begin to seek to live in that reality every day to realize that with Christ dwelling in me and I die to myself, I say no to my fleshly cravings and I choose to obey and follow Him. He can empower and enable me to live a life set free from sin. That never means I'll reach a place of perfection and I can coast. It's always going to be a daily surrender to obedience to Him. But we need to um, take up our cross daily and then we need to follow Him. We need to live like Him, talk like Him. Uh, in the six disciplines in the disciples' cross, the first one, the center of the cross, uh, is uh, abide in Christ. And the revised materials for Master Life changed that to... Um, uh, well, I can't remember now what it was called, um, but it basically was a focus on your quiet time and having time with the Lord. Uh, but I talked to Avery, and he he said he preferred abide in Christ, and so that's what we uh, we moved it back to that. The original Master Life used the term abide in Christ, and uh, that comes out of John 15, the parable of the vine, where Jesus said, "I'm the vine." You're the branches. And uh, we need to abide in Him and allow His words to abide in us. And it's in that abiding relationship with Christ that Jesus says we can bear much lasting fruit for Him. So we need to develop that kind of an intimate fellowship with the Lord. I remember when I was in the eighth grade, I had a science teacher who... Um, asked us to write a research paper and so I I didn't know what to write on and he recommended archaeology and I thought well I don't know what that is I guess that'd be a good one to study so I did a study on archaeology and found out that's a study of uh, previous cultures uh, based on the artifacts that they've left around and after I wrote the paper he said would you like to go arrowhead hunting he collected Indian artifacts Indian arrowheads and I said yes and so he took me hunt uh, arrowhead hunting and uh, in Middle Tennessee it's true here in Georgia as well where farmers have plowed up their ground if Native Americans lived there and you got to know the right spots uh, you let it rain a little bit and wash the dust off of the rocks and there are arrowheads out there you can pick them up so we went arrowhead hunting found a sack full of arrowheads that day and I got addicted to hunting arrowheads and I spent time hunting arrowheads off every opportunity. I found a place within walking distance from my house. At eighth grade you can't drive anywhere without help so um, I would walk and go hunt arrowheads and I would spend hours. There sometimes I'd spend eight hours out there. I wanted to walk every inch of that field to make sure I got every arrowhead that was out there. It's not complicated you just keep your eyes open and turn over the rocks that look promising and put the arrowheads in your bag. And so uh, I found though that it's just me and God out here and I started talking to God about everything. I talked to him about problems I was dealing with, relationships and talking about my future and decisions I needed to make. And there were times I'd just praise him for the beauty of the world I saw around me. and. I look back on those years of hunting arrowheads and I realized it was during those years out in the fields that God was cultivating a personal love relationship with me that was very real and personal. 
And we need that kind of an intimate relationship with Jesus. Uh, we need to walk with Him and spend time with Him and talk with Him and get to know Him. Um, and I, I'm encouraged that uh, even in churches where we've gotten away from the Lord, you remember in um, Revelation chapter 3, Jesus sent a message to a church at Laodicea. What was the problem with Laodicea? They were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. And Jesus, any churches that maybe you're a pinch that way, <laughs> we got a lot of churches that uh, that might be a description of our church today. It, I think it is for much of North American Christianity. But Jesus had a message for that church. I'm standing and knocking. And if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and they can have sweet fellowship with me and I with them. And the good news is even in the middle of a really sick, lukewarm church, you can abide in Christ. You can have an intimate fellowship with Him and uh, come to know Him and love Him and uh, let His words dwell in you. You begin to live out that in your life and uh, Jesus can work in you to bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit, lasting fruit. And um, we need to learn to abide in Christ. Uh, the the six-week study uh, that we developed for Abide in Christ, I mentioned Andrew Murray. Of all the people that have had an influence on my personal growth in following Christ as a disciple, I've had some godly men I've worked with, but probably nobody's impacted me more than Andrew Murray. And I never met the guy. He died in 1917, but he was a writer. And I've read and reread and reread his books and sought to apply those principles in my own life. One of his books was called The True Vine. Uh, Andrew Murray is, uh, if you were to go and look for Abide in Christ, probably you'd find a book by Andrew Murray. He wrote the classic book on um, abiding in Christ in the 1860s. Uh, he, he lived in South Africa as a pastor, and there were a lot of vineyards in South Africa, and he had studied the, the characteristics of how do you raise grapevines to produce lots of luscious grapes. And he learned a lot from that, par that parable. And in the 1890s, he wrote a book called The True Vine. And we took it, it was a, a book written for young people who were young Christians to help them learn how to abide in Christ. So we took it, and a Bo Stevens, a guy who actually was on staff here at this church uh, for a while, uh, Bo uh, helped us to develop the workbook out of that to help people learn how to abide in Christ and uh, to bear much lasting fruit. Uh, the second discipline, and you'll notice in the Disciples' Cross, most of you are familiar with this, but the, the vertical bars focus on our relationship with God, and the horizontal bar focuses on our relationship with others around us, uh, both the believers in the church and the lost world around us. But uh, living the Word is the next discipline that we take a look at. Uh, we need to live in God's Word. 
uh, until His Word is living in us. The verse of Scripture for that one that's our memory verse for that week is in James 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Uh, we don't need to be just hearers of the Word. We need to be doers of the Word. Uh, we need to apply His Word. And uh, it's possible for us to become so um, so focused on the cognitive inf information and not applying it that our lives don't look like they ought to. One of the things I did as I was writing this call to follow Christ um, there, there are basically three ways I see people responding to that call to follow Christ uh, biblically. Uh, one of those is the way of the Sadducees. They're the uh, poster child. Uh, in uh, Mark chapter um, 12, you remember the Sadducees came up to Jesus and they, they didn't believe there was a resurrection. Uh, and they said, uh, suppose there, were, there was a man and he was married and he had seven brothers. And uh, he died and didn't have any children. Well, according to the Leviterate law, his, uh, one of his brothers was supposed to marry his widow and have children in the name of his brother. So his brother's name wouldn't die out. So uh, the second son, uh, brother, married her and he died and didn't have any children. The third, fourth, so through all seven. And then the woman died and they questioned what to Jesus was in in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, they don't even believe in the resurrection, so they're trying to trap him. And Jesus made this statement, uh, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? The way of the Sadducees is uh, a human-centered approach to following God. And what they're doing, they don't know the Scriptures, they don't know what God's got to say about that. They're using their own human reasoning to decide what's right and wrong. And he said, you don't know the Scripture, so they don't know what God's got to say about it. Number two, they don't know the power of God. They've not experienced what God can do, and so they're using their own human reasoning to decide what's right and wrong and what God can and cannot or will not do. And it's all a man-centered approach to following the Lord. We've got a lot of people in our culture today, don't we? That that's how they function. I don't care what he's got to say in there. I don't even know what he's got to say and I don't want to know what he's got to say because they're comfortable with their own human-centered reasoning of what's right and wrong. And so you can justify abortion, you can justify same-sex marriage and homosexuality and all kinds of sinful, perverted behaviors and think it's okay because you're not using the Scripture as your reference point. And so we even have people in our churches, though, if we're not careful, that they use their own reasoning to decide what's right and wrong and how we ought to function rather than looking to see what's God got to say about that and, uh, and to experience God working in and through. So one of the ways of following God is the way of the Sadducees, a human-centered approach. A second way, though, that we have see people following God, this is the way of the Pharisees. 
And in John chapter uh, 5, uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, He gave, um, He said, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to me come to me to have life. So uh, here we're here were people, they studied the Scriptures, they knew the Scriptures, they memorized them, they, they had all these uh, rules and regulations to make sure they obeyed the Scriptures. And Jesus said, you study the Scriptures diligently, that thinking that you in them you have eternal life. This is a Scripture-centered approach to knowing and doing God's will. Sounds like a good one, doesn't it? Scripture-centered. But you notice that what they did, they focused on the Scriptures. But they wouldn't come to Jesus or God to interpret those Scriptures. The Scripture tells us that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. And what had happened with the Pharisees, they had made the Scriptures their God. And they, they used the Scriptures as a substitute for the, the author of the Scriptures. And you begin to see the difference between the two. And Jesus said, you've made the script, you think that you have eternal life in the Scriptures, but they point to me, and you won't come to me so I can give you life. Uh, so the way of the Sadducees is a Scripture-centered approach to following God's will. It sounds good, but it stops one step short of reality that God desires for us. And um, we've got people today, and I think there are many of us Southern Baptists, that we pride ourselves in how, we, how well we know the Scriptures. We're Bible scholars, and we go to lots of Bible studies, and we study the Scriptures diligently, but if we're not careful, we can let our Scripture study and our knowledge of Scripture become a substitute for a relationship with the God of the Scripture. And um, that would be a, a sad thing for us to come to that place. And we would wind up being like the Pharisees, judgmental, arrogant. The Scripture says that um, knowledge puffs up. Uh, if you pride yourself in your knowledge, you can become arrogant and proud and judgmental of the people who don't measure up to you. And we call that Phariseeism. Uh, it's that judgmental spirit that's not pleasant to those who observe it. And, um, and Jesus said to the Pharisees, uh, they, those scriptures point to me and you won't come to me. Well, uh, that's a way that we see common, but it's stopping short. It doesn't mean that we don't need to study the Scriptures. We don't need to stop with the Scriptures. We need to let the Scriptures take us to the Lord. And the third way is a Christ-centered approach to following, Christ, following God. In the Christ-centered approach, same passage of Scripture, go ahead and study the Scriptures diligently. That's valuable. That's beneficial. We need to live in the Word. But take one more step and get engaged with the Holy Spirit who dwells in you and let Him help you to understand the Scriptures. Let Him help you apply those Scriptures. Live in them out. That's where James comes in. Don't just be hearer, be a doer. And when we let the Scriptures 
dwell in us. The abide in Christ, you'll notice it's connected with living in the Word and praying in faith. Those really all go together. Uh, when we are abiding in Christ, we allow His words to abide in us. So we've got a relationship to God and His Word, and the combination of that is what makes the difference with us. So we, we respond to the Lord. We live in the Word. Uh, when I was in the ninth grade, I went to Ridgecrest. Um, my dad took us every uh, summer to Ridgecrest, and um, my teacher that year challenged us to read our Bible every day. Now, my dad was a pastor, but he was a busy pastor with six kids, and he was poor. <laughs> Uh, and he struggled. He would take every opportunity to earn some extra money along the way to try to pay the bills. And um, I was never taught to have a quiet time. Uh, but this ninth grade teacher at Ridgecrest challenged us to read our Bible every day. And I don't know what it was, but God just stirred it in my heart. I want you to do that. I said, okay. And I I bought a new Bible at the Baptist bookstore at Ridgecrest and started reading my Bible. And all through high school, uh, I think my memory's probably faulty, but as I recall, there were very few times I was not in God's Word every day. Now, there were I, I would do it at night, and so there were lots of times I'd fall asleep reading it, but <laughs> I tried to get into God's Word every day. And I look back, and what God did with me during those formative years, eighth grade, I start spending time with Him in prayer. And ninth grade, I start reading His Word every day. And God began to cultivate a love relationship with me and develop my character and mold and shape me. Uh, we need to live in God's Word. Uh, Philip Nation, uh, who was at Lifeway at the time, developed our, our book, the six-week study on live in the Word to teach people how to study the Bible, how to understand the Bible, how to treasure God's Word in our hearts, memorize it is appropriate, uh, but to teach it, we need to share what God's got to say to us, we need to share it with other people and, uh, and live it out so that it really uh, it becomes alive in us. Um, I wanna play um, in the Call to Follow Christ, I'm going to play a song for you, and let me tell you, in the Call to Follow Christ, one of the things I did, I had just worked in New York City before I came back to work at Lifeway, and I met a lady named Damaris Carbaugh, and she had just recorded an album with 10 songs based on Master Life themes, because she said, uh, we've got 80 people in my church at Manhattan Grace Tabernacle Church. It's a church plant of Brooklyn Tab. Uh, Damaris had grown up at Brooklyn Tabernacle and sang with their choir as a soloist. And I found out that she, um, she started there when there were 26 members. So she grew up with Brooklyn Tab, but she recorded 10 songs. And we got permission from her music publisher to put a song in that goes along with each of the disciplines. So there are seven songs in here. And I, I want to play the one for Live in the Word uh, because it... Um, give an example of the music and what uh, reason I did this uh, is I wanted people to uh, understand uh, there, there's something about music that it can kind of become an earworm you know you just it, it goes plays over and over in your head and you learn it and you you love it and it sticks and then when you need to apply it it, it sinks in 
to listen to uh, Live in Your Word by Damaris. sticks in my uh, mind. I want to live in your word until your word is living in me. I want it to show. I want my life to be different. And um, though that music has really uh, encouraged a lot of people. Um, I'll get to the um, Fellowship with Believers piece, but the guys who did the music for Damra, she, um, 
her music publisher had asked her to write a theme album and she didn't want to do theme albums. She liked selecting the music that just appealed to her and her uh, publisher insisted. And so she said, well, uh, Master Life, we got all these people going through Master Life, get the writers to get Master Life and see what they do with it. And uh, when I talked with her and her husband, he said, uh, Claude, we usually get demo CDs from writers and they've got 20 songs on them, 18 of them you cringe as you listen. You think, nah, it's not going to work. Maybe a couple might be possibilities. And But he said, they sent us uh, 10 songs and they loved all of them. Dammer said one of them, though, she felt like the, the message in that music ought to be sung by a man. I don't know what the song was, but she uh, went back and asked them to do a different one for that. She recorded the music. Well, um, a gr group of uh, women, 75 women, at the women's prison in uh, Nashville went through called the Fall of Christ. And they were listening to the music, and they, at, they had a graduation cer ceremony to uh, have these 75 ladies graduate. And they found out that Steve Seiler was one of the writers of the music, and he lived in Nashville. So they invited Steve. I don't know why they didn't let, let me come. I would have <laughs> lo loved to have been there. But he, said, he called me afterward. He said, Claude, I just played the music. He played, and the ladies sang the songs. Uh, from the call to follow Christ and um, and he said when these women 75 women in prison started singing the song I choose grace that song talks about uh, the fact that uh, because of God's grace to us and his forgiveness for us when I've offended other uh, when others have offended me I need to choose grace I need to be forgiving of others and uh, he said that blew me away. He said that was the most meaningful experience in my Christian life. To see what God had done to transform these women and cause them to choose grace. So um, anyway, the music is, uh, is uh, one of the benefits. Um, I, I really am pleased that we, uh, we priced that for 10 bucks and you got a music CD that would normally cost that. So anyway. Um, Pray in faith is the next discipline, the third discipline. I've already talked a little bit about prayer, and you'll notice that uh, living in the Word and praying in faith are uh, closely connected with our abiding with, in Christ. That really is how we abide with Him. We, prayer is not just a religious activity you check off your to-do list. It's a relationship with a person. And we learn to pray by spending time with Him and and uh, talking to Him about everything. Um, the uh, the scripture there for pray in faith comes from Mark 11, uh, verse 24. Um, let me see. Yeah. Verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer believe that you receive it and it will be yours um, it's a powerful promise uh, but we got to understand a lot of things about uh, asking and uh, T.W. Hunt is the one we uh, we took I took a book I'd written with T.W. Hunt it originally was called In God's Presence came out in 1995 I, I have been doing this a long time <laughs> um, and we reworked it uh, 
for the Pray in Faith piece, but uh, when I was working on this Pray in Faith book, I was getting ready to teach it. Uh, T.W. had written uh, for us the, the discipleship book called uh, Disciples Prayer Life. And some of you may remember that uh, book. It's still in print, but um, it's a heavy-duty master's course on prayer. <laughs> And um, we, I had a, we had a meeting with Avery Willis's team. We, are, we were meeting, and one of our secretaries said, I've got three little boys, and I work a full-time job, and it's a 45-minute commute to work and back. She said, I can't give you an hour a day doing homework, but I need something to help me. And so we started, it was called the Growing of uh, the um, Everyday Discipleship <laughs> Series. And uh, we designed it so it would take about 10 minutes a day. And by the way, that's the pattern for these books. The lessons take about 10 to 15 minutes a day, so it's not nearly as demanding for the really busy students who've got a lot going on or uh, parents that um, just it's really challenging to find time. So it's not real demanding. And every day people get into God's Word and they talk to Him. About, his script, about the scripture they've read, and uh, it helps them to develop these disciplines. Uh, but essentially, the way I think about uh, these books, and this would be an example, T.W. Hunt is a godly man of prayer. And we wanted to teach people how to pray, and uh, I, was, I was teaching this before I started writing it. And uh, I was uh, in Texas, and a man who worked in a jail in Texas came up to me and he said uh, this is what I need for my jail ministry he said we have people get saved and they need to learn how to pray and there aren't any good models to teach them in on the inside of the prison necessarily the jail he was working with and he said I need something I can do to teach people to pray so when I wrote the book I uh, what I did is I took TW's message but I wrote it so it's like you're sitting across the table from TW Hunt and you get T.W. Hunt one-on-one, -on -one, five days a week, teaching you how to pray. And he'll give you activities to uh, practice what you, he's teaching you. You practice that in your own private prayer time. Then, when you get together for your small group, you have a prayer meeting, and you practice what you've been learning. And uh, so that's the way this book is designed. Um, one of the, I had a church in uh, Wellington, Texas pastor called me one day and he said, Claude, um, uh, I wanted to ask you to pray for my church and if God tells you anything, call me back. And I'd never quite had a question like that before. And I said, well, tell me about your church. Well, uh, he, they had been through a season where they'd gone through experiencing God and he said, people have gotten a love relationship with their Heavenly Father and we went through fresh encounter and he said, I think we've been dealing with sin and things. And he said, we think we've experienced a revival. But he said, we believe that if we had a revival, there ought to be, well, see a spiritual harvest. Lost people ought to be getting saved, and we're not seeing that. He said, as we've been praying, God's laid it on our heart two things. We need to become a people of prayer, and we ought to see a spiritual harvest. Would you pray for us? And if God tells you anything, call me back. Well, uh, I can't tell you the whole story. By the way, let me just mention to you up at the top of your page, handout you'll see a video blog address uh, on that video blog address I think it's on there isn't it 
bottom. Oh, it's on the bottom. I'm sorry. Um, uh, the video blog address, if you'll go there, there are about a hundred videos under a video tab and just lots of stories. The church in Wellington, uh, a church uh, related to prayer and spiritual harvest is one of those stories. You can listen to uh, all of it. But uh, And by the way, the Growing Disciples is the title for that blog. There's a webinar. Um, that uh, introduces these uh, disciplines uh, much more briefly than I'm doing today. But anyway, uh, I called him back. I spent a couple hours praying and just Lord started downloading ideas and I called him back. One of the things they did to focus on prayer, they decided, in, it was the spring of the year, they decided we're going to take our entire church through this study on prayer. It was called In God's Presence in those days, but um, they started with sixth graders through the senior adults. And um, I was uh, interested in seeing how that turned out. Um, but I went to the church after they'd finished a lot of other things. I was there for Pentecost Sunday. And God did some amazing things in that church in the coming days. But um, I saw a church that had learned to pray. They'd had some real intercessors in their church. They had seen people who were real prayer warriors, but they had really taken seriously the need to learn to pray and talked to one of the uh, teachers of sixth grade boys. And she said, uh, Claude, the week that we were studying responding prayers, that's confession, uh, worship, thanksgiving, and um, what's the other one? Uh, praise, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I don't know if it's my medicine or the the old age. I'm uh, getting rusty. Uh, four types of responding prayers. She said as those boys came in, we started our prayer time, and she said those little boys spent 30 minutes praising the Lord. And she said, I've never heard little boys pray like that before. Mm-hmm. And I was in a small group with uh, young adults, during that weekend and uh, probably 15 people in the room and they would surface a request and just pray all around that thing and then somebody else would surface a request and they'd pray all around it and another request and pray all around it and and uh, two hours went by like that and the leader interrupted us and she said hey we we got to go to church tomorrow we're gonna have to quit <laughs> so we called it into the prayer meeting but I saw a church that had taken prayer seriously and uh, we need to help people learn how to pray by the way I'll mention this I'm going to be doing a session tonight on uh, uh, take your uh, lead your church in a prayer boot camp and I developed a, a prayer training experience for churches using the battle plan for prayer by the Kendrick brothers and uh, you can download all of my files on the blog there you don't have to have been to my conference or to prayer boot camp to do your own but uh, I would encourage you to take a look at that if you're not able to be in my conference tonight we need to help people learn how to pray one other thing I'll share with you and then I'll, I'll have to rush on these others but One of the activities I have in here, in the small group, I encourage you to take some time to pray for each other. And uh, the first time I experimented with this, I was teaching in God's presence in my church, had 18 people, 
showed up for the first night. I explained to them the way the book's going to go. You're going to get T.W. Hunt one-on-one, five days a week. And then when we come together, we're going to have a prayer meeting, and we're going to pray at least a part of our time. We're going to be praying. And I said, now, I know some of you are scared to death all of a sudden. You didn't know this was going to be a prayer meeting. You thought this was going to be about prayer. I do want us to pray, but I know some of you are afraid to pray out loud. You have my permission not to pray out loud. Number two, uh, we're not going to pray around the circle, so you'll feel guilty if you don't pray. And I'm not going to call on you to pray unless I know that's going to be okay. But I do want us to pray. And you understand, don't you, that you can pray silently and God can hear. You can understand that. So we're going to pray together. And uh, But then I, I got them into groups to experiment. Same gender, men with men, women with women. And I gave them this assignment. Take one person at a time and say, how can we pray for you? And, and I said, let me give you a guideline. Unless you're dealing with a life and death health issue, let's not make this about health. And because health is easy. Uh, it's safe. Uh, I said, so let's not make this about health. Number two, this is not how can we pray for a relative or somebody else. How can we pray for you? And... I just left it up to them at that point. How can we pray for you? And then whatever they share, somebody pray. And I was just hoping that there'd be at least one intercessor in the group that would be willing to lead the prayer. And so um, we started the prayer time. And the very first request I heard came from a woman to my right. And she said, we found out Wednesday my 16-year-old daughter's pregnant. We don't know what we're going to do. Would you please pray for me? And I found out later, nearly every woman in that group would have said they were afraid to pray out loud. But not that night. <laughs> they cried out to God for their sister because they could identify with what she was going through. And that started happening all around the room. And these are the Sunday night people. And uh, people were carrying heavy burdens. And before it was all over, everybody in the room was in tears. The next week, Janet Nunley comes walking in with a, a case of Kleenex tissue and passed the boxes out and said, I have a feeling we're going to need these in this class. And we did. But uh, that's one of the things about this particular course. Every fifth lesson is about how do we pray together. And we as a church body need to learn to pray for each other. And I have found... Even in my church, we've got a loving and uh, uh, meaningful church. People love each other and people are faithful to the Lord, but we don't pray for each other. And especially, we don't pray for the private things that um, you normally don't share publicly. We don't create an opportunity for that. And we've got broken, hurting people. And if we'll start praying for those kinds of things, I think it would bring a new life and vitality to our church. Um, so I, well, I can't go any further on that one. Let me uh, finish up. Fellowship with believers is uh, we need to understand how we function as the body of Christ with other believers. And so this is a, is a, a, a book or a, a discipline to help people learn how to love one another, uh, how to serve one another. Uh, we need to learn how to treat each other, to forgive one another, encourage one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. There are all kinds of things we need to do in the body of Christ to function as a body. 
And uh, we asked Mel Blackaby, who's the pastor of this church. Mel had worked real closely with his dad on a church experiencing God together. And uh, we asked Mel, he was still in Canada at the time, but we felt like he was demonstrating uh, what it would look like for a church to begin to function like a body of Christ. And uh, so Mel wrote this uh, book to help us. One of the stories I have uh, coming from my uh, years of experiencing this, I, I was uh, working at the Sunday School Board at the time in a church training class. Our teacher asked uh, for prayer requests and I shared a prayer request. I told him I was struggling with the discipline of spending time with the Lord. And, uh, you know, I had to work, get to work at, I think we started at uh, 6, 7.30 in the morning, so I had to leave home early, and it was just a challenge with family and things, and I was struggling, and he said, how can I help you? And so we came up with a plan that at 5 a.m. every morning, we would call each other. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I would call Robert, and Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, Robert would call me and we took Saturdays off so if we had a chance to sleep in, we could sleep in. And uh, the deal was if five minutes after five you haven't gotten a call, the guy's sleeping in. Call him and wake him up. So uh, that was the agreement and um, I don't remember ever having to call Robert. He was very disciplined. There were several times Robert had to call me. <laughs> but over a course of a couple of years, God began to solidly plant this discipline in my life, and Robert helped me. And, uh, and to me, that's the, the passage from Hebrews 10. Let's consider how we can spur each other on to love and good deeds. Robert was a part of the body of Christ, and he helped me grow to become more like Christ. We need to help each other. The next discipline is witness to the world. Um, and uh, for this one, this relates to the people that are not followers of Christ and how do we interact with them and be involved with them. Um, some of you may be familiar with the name Oscar Thompson. He wrote a book called Concentric Circles of Concern. I had the privilege of re, uh, revising that for Brahman Holman. And we took that book and made this workbook out of it to teach people how to uh, to survey their world, the people in their relationships, to pray for them, build relationship bridges with them, um, begin to share Christ with them and lead them to faith in, in the Lord. And uh, So this is an evangelism tool, uh, but it focuses especially on a relational evangelism tool to help people be a witness to the world. And then uh, the final discipline is minister to others. Uh, you remember when I showed you the Disciples' Cross from Master Life, it had ministries around all of the points of the cross, and uh, we've encompassed all of those in this sixth discipline of ministry to others. So we minister to the Lord, uh, we minister to Him in prayer and in His Word, and we uh, minister to other believers, we minister to a lost world, and uh, the scripture tells us that we ought to, in love, serve one another. And so this is a way we can uh, demonstrate love to each other by loving and serving others. And that particular book, I forgot to put that one. Oh, here it is. 
Uh, Richard Leach, who used to work at the North American Mission Board, or Home Mission Board, I guess, in those days, uh, in Servant Evangelism, and uh, David Wheeler, who was an evangelism director in Indiana and Ohio. He uh, now is at Liberty University, but the two of them collaborated to develop this book to help people um, be servants, uh, to serve other people, and, uh, and also to use that as an open door to ministry to those who need to know Jesus. So uh, those are the six disciplines. And uh, the, way, uh, the way this course is designed, it's self-paced. So for individuals, five daily devotions usually take about 10 or 15 minutes. And then there's a small group study. You don't need a leader's guide. There are no videos to go along with it. Uh, but the built-in leader guide. So uh, one of the things you could do in your church is introduce the series using the call to follow Christ. Uh, I, we've got a brand new pastor at my church, and we have not really ever, to my knowledge, in the last 20-something years, we don't have a core curriculum at my church for disciple-making. And um, I've proposed that we... We're getting ready to do the Who's Your One Emphasis? And I have a feeling he's going to lead our church to reach a bunch of people for Jesus. They baptized 45 at his last church he came from in six months. And we're eager to see what he's going to do, But we, what the Lord's going to do. But we need to be ready to disciple those new believers. And so I'm proposing if, if he doesn't have a better curriculum, let's start with here. Start with something and get people introduced to these, uh, these disciplines, and then offer the ongoing studies um, in your church. Well, um, I gotta quit. Um, my, my partner back there is supposed to have already shut me down. Let me pray. Lord, um, thank you for the privilege we have to serve you, and Lord, you've given us a, a very important command. Help us to obey you, and uh, obey your final command to make disciples Lord, help us to be one and show other people what it looks like. And then I pray, Lord, that we'd be able to say like Paul, come follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And, and we can help each other to grow in Christ-likeness so that we'll think and act like Jesus in all our relationships. Guide us, Lord, as we seek to help our churches obey your final command. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat>